Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, March 8th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look first at the weather forecast for today. Still quiet today. Winter storm moves in Thursday. This forecast comes to us from KCRG. Today still looks pretty quiet across our area. Most of what's on the radar off to our southwest isn't quite reaching the ground or is very light, but we could feasibly see a few flurries out of it early this morning south and west of Iowa City. Much of the area will remain cloudy with highs into the lower 40s this afternoon. For Thursday and Thursday night, we are still watching Thursday for a potential winter storm to move into eastern Iowa. At this time, a winter storm watch has been issued for areas along and north of I-80 in eastern Iowa. Watch for snow to start moving into the area later in the morning, probably after 10 to 11 a.m., then overspread the area through the afternoon and evening. Due to temperatures around freezing and heavy, wet nature of the snow, totals will probably wind up being highly variable, generally in the 3 to 7 inch range in the watch area. Farther south, amounts will likely be less than 3 inches. Now let's see what the front page of the Courier has to offer today. We have these stories to read. Budget draft has 2.4% tax increase. Vote postponed on therapy ban to survive deadly Mexican abduction. And we'll begin reading the story that appears at the top of the page, Bullying Royals WSR Parents, District Administration Blamed for Not Acting on Multiple Incidents. Donald Promnitz wrote this story and gave it a dateline of Waverly. Controversy surrounding an ongoing bullying problem was front and center Monday for the Board of Education with Waverly Shell Rock Community Schools parents expressing frustration at what they believe is a lack of action by the administration. Before Board President Dennis Epley opened the floor for public comment, he said that officials had all heard complaints from parents and members of the community and didn't want to give the impression that matters were being, quote, swept under the rug. Quote, let me assure you that is not the case, Epley said. Every email regarding school issues I have received, it is read, but not all of them are replied to in detail, unquote. Speakers and concerned parents filled the boardroom beyond its capacity. One of them was City Councilwoman Heather Bufor, who said she has been approached by more parents nervous to speak. She said they feared backlash from the community members or that their children would be bullied if they spoke out. Quote, I think we all need to be accountable for ourselves, for our family, and for our students, said Brufour. However, I do feel that the board and the administration needs to be accountable for themselves as well. People do like to point fingers, and I think everybody in this situation needs to be accountable, unquote. Sean Ellerbuck shared his own experience while hosting a high school foreign exchange student from Chile last month. Two students reportedly made comments about killing exchange students as they would be easy and nobody would care about them. One student specifically named Ellerbrook's student as she had gotten him in trouble in Spanish class. Ellerbrook said the conversation was confirmed by Principal David Fox, who notified them. 
Rotary filed a complaint, but Ellerbrook said that a lack of action or response by the district led to the parents and Rotary International terminating the exchange early at a substantial monetary cost. A second student from Asia also opted out of her exchange. Quote, from day one, the administration seemed conflicted on how to proceed, Ellerbrook said. Ellerbrook's daughter, Ari, also expressed her frustration to the board. Quote, our foreign exchange student was one of our closest friends, and the actions that this school has taken has been so lackluster, she said. It's been so frustrating as a student walking through the halls, and knowing that nothing happened to him that was enough to make her feel better or for her to feel safe in the school district, unquote. Last month, Board Policy 503.1 was discussed dealing with student behavior. Board members agreed at the time to look into any possible changes. On Monday, they voted unanimously to set a goal to create a safer school district. However, parents like Chris and Jamie Holtos say that they and many others are at their limit, pointing to a lack of action on the part of administration. In December, their son, a student at Waverly Shell Rock Middle School, was reportedly assaulted by another student over a dollar, resulting in a concussion. The Holthouses claim the injury has resulted in recurring headaches that have adversely affected his ability to concentrate. Quote, it is sad that concerns regarding issues in the WSR school have brought strangers together and very disheartening to hear the issues that these families have been trying to bring to light, Jamie said. Quote, those strangers have found a common platform, change and accountability in the WSR school district, unquote. The board further agreed to meet to set an outline for what the new goal would constitute before the next meeting in April. Next, the courier shows a photograph of a woman voting at a booth, and the caption says, Voters go to the polls. Judy Burfriend casts her ballot in Hawkeye Community College's $35 million bond issue referendum on Tuesday at the Cedar Heights Community Presbyterian Church polling place in Cedar Falls. Find results of the vote and other Cedar Valley elections at wfcourier.com and in Thursday's Courier. Now we have an article filed by Maria Cooper. Waterloo Council postpones further readings of conversion ban ordinance until May 1st. Dateline Waterloo. And we see here a photograph of people in attendance at the council meeting. The city council postponed a vote on a proposed conversion therapy ban after the issue attracted an overflow crowd to the council chambers on Monday night. Dozens of residents didn't get the chance to speak after the council postponed discussion until May 1st. Residents filled the council chambers and the overflow meeting room, leaving many to stand against the wall. The ordinance proposed by council member Jonathan Greider to ban conversion therapy in Waterloo was scheduled for a second reading Monday. Conversion therapy is the practice of attempting to change a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. On February 20th, the council voted 5-1 to one to ban the practice. Council member Dave Bozen voted no. 
However, the council unanimously voted against suspending the rules, requiring the proposal to go through three readings to gain final approval. After the ordinance was read, Council Member Ray Foos immediately motioned to postpone the discussion of the ordinance until May 1st to coincide with the legislature's session coming to an end. The motion to postpone passed 5-2 to two, with Grider and Rob Nichols voting against it. Council Member Dave Bozen said he wanted to postpone discussion due to everything going on in the State House. Unquote. Quote, I'd like to see the ordinance after the state legislative session so we won't be in violation of something they may pass, he said. State lawmakers have advanced bills such as a ban on gender-affirming medical care for transgender youths, prohibiting instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in the early grades, requiring school employees to notify parents if they believe a child is transgender, and requiring students to use bathrooms that align with their biological sex. Quote, it's very clear with a Republican majority that they're going to throw out hateful LGBTQ plus legislation, Foose said. We have to do this in a way that doesn't put us in a liability, unquote. As it stands, the city would enforce a ban on conversion therapy through the city attorney's office. The city attorney would mail any medical or mental health professional who is in violation, a written notice to immediately cease and desist. If the health professional doesn't immediately comply, the violation would become a municipal infraction pursuant to city code. Ryan Howard, a resident who wanted to speak at the hearing, said he was glad it was postponed. Quote, I appreciate the point at what could happen at the state legislature, he said. It's outside the city's jurisdiction. It should come off the table or be removed altogether. Another reason for postponement? Misinformation. Council member Nia Wilder said she received a call from a constituent asking her to vote against the ordinance because she believed it was for banning gender reassignment surgery, a surgery that alters someone's physical appearance and sexual characteristics to resemble the person's identified gender. Quote, I just want to make sure that when we do this, there can be no false information spread, and we're not going to be getting phone calls to not do something that we're not doing anyway, she said. However, Grider believes postponing two months will just give rumors the air to breathe. He detailed the emails and phone calls he'd received in the past few weeks. Quote, I've received multiple messages that I want to kill children. I've received multiple messages that I should kill myself and my family, he said, noting one call called him Groomer Grider. Quote, what is stopping these people from spreading lies that put these children at risk? From start to finish, this process will take eight weeks. By postponing it, we're giving those folks more oxygen to prevent this from happening, unquote. Mayor Quinton Hart said since the ordinance has already had one approved reading, that if any changes are made, the council will have to start all over again. City Clerk Kelly Felchy said if any revisions are made, work sessions could occur prior to May 1st. Now to the story about the abduction that occurred in Mexico yesterday. 
Two survivors of deadly Mexico abduction returned to America, two found dead. The story from the Associated Press. Dateline, Cudad, Victoria, Mexico. A road trip to Mexico for cosmetic surgery ended with two Americans dead and two others found alive in a rural area near the Gulf Coast. After a violent shootout, an abduction was captured on video, officials said Tuesday. The surviving Americans were back on U.S. soil after being sped to the border near Brownsville, the southernmost tip of Texas, in a convoy of ambulances and SUVs escorted by Mexican military Humvees and National Guard trucks with mounted machine guns. And here the courier includes a map showing that at the very tip of Texas is the city of Brownsville, and on the other side, Metamoros, Mexico. A relative of one of the victims said Monday that the four had traveled together from the Carolinas so one of them could get a tummy tuck surgery from a doctor in the Mexican border city of Matamoros, where Friday's abduction took place. Tamalupas, Governor Americo Villarreal, said the four were found in a wooden shack where they had been guarded by a man who was arrested. He said the captive Americans had been moved around by the captors and at one point were taken to a medical clinic to create confusion and avoid efforts to rescue them, unquote. The two dead were turned over to the U.S. authorities following forensic work at the morgue, the governor said. The governor said the wounded American, Eric Williams, had been shot in the left leg and the wound was not life-threatening. The survivors were taken to Valley Regional Medical Center with an FBI escort, the Brownsville Herald reported. A spokesperson for the hospital referred all inquiries to the FBI. Quote, it's quite a relief, said Robert Williams, Eric's brother, reached by phone in North Carolina. Quote, I look forward to seeing him again and actually being able to talk to him, unquote. The U.S. citizens were found in a shack in a rural area east of Metamoros called Iardo, Tecolot, on the way to the Gulf Coast known as Baghdad Beach, according to Empoliapas State Chief Prosecutor Irving Barrios. Shortly after entering Mexico on Friday, the four were caught amid fighting between rival cartel groups in the city. Barrios said the hypothesis is, quote, that it was confusion, not a direct attack. Video and photographs taken during and immediately after the abduction show the Americans' white minivan sitting behind another vehicle with at least one bullet hole in the driver's side window. A witness said the two vehicles had collided. Almost immediately, several men in tactical vests and toting assault rifles arrived in another vehicle to surround the scene. The gunman walked one of the Americans into the bed of a white pickup, then dragged and loaded the three others. Terrified civilian motorists sat silently in their cars, hoping not to draw their attention. Two of the victims appeared to be motionless. Officials said a Mexican woman a block and a half away from the scene also died in Friday's crossfire. The shootings illustrate the terror that has prevailed for years in the Metamoros, a city dominated 
by factions of the powerful Gulf drug cartel, who often fight among themselves. Amid the violence, thousands of Mexicans have disappeared in Tamaulipas state alone. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador said the people responsible would be punished. He referenced arrests made in the 2019 killings of nine U.S.-Mexican dual citizens in Sonora near the U.S. border. He complained about the U.S. media's coverage of the missing Americans, accusing them of sensationalism. Quote, it's not like that when they kill Mexicans in the United States. They, meaning the media, go quiet like mummies, unquote. Quote, it's very unfortunate, they, meaning the U.S. government, have the right to protest like they have, Lopez Obrador said. We really regret that this happens in our country. The cartels are responsible for the deaths of Americans, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland said. Quote, the DEA and the FBI are doing everything possible to dismantle and disrupt and ultimately prosecute the leaders of the cartels and the entire networks that they depend on, unquote. White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby said the U.S. is working with Mexican officials to learn more about the circumstances surrounding the killings. The FBI had offered a $50,000 reward for the victim's return and the arrest of the abductors. Robert Williams said in a telephone interview that he and his brother, 38-year-old Eric Williams, are from South Carolina, but now live in the Winston-Salem area of North Carolina. Williams described his brother as easygoing and fun-spirited, unquote. He didn't know his brother was traveling to Mexico until after the abduction hit the news, but from looking at his brother's Facebook posts, he thinks his brother did not consider the trip dangerous. Quote, he thought it would be fun, Williams said. He hadn't heard anything about his brother's whereabouts, he said. Told that his brother was among the survivors Tuesday, Robert Williams said that when they meet, quote, I'll just tell him how happy I am to see him and how glad I am that he made it through and that I love him, unquote. Next, we have a story filed by Andy Malone. Pair of Cedar Falls council members call for no increase in city property taxes. Dateline Cedar Falls. And this story begins with a photograph of the Cedar Falls City Council in session. Two members of the City Council called for no property tax increase for residents while meeting in committee on Monday. It's already been a challenging couple of months for Cedar Falls, as officials have crafted their draft budget. But Daryl Cruz was adamant in his request and was supported by Dave Sires. Overall property tax collections are budgeted at $24.48 million for fiscal year 2024. That's a 2.4% increase over the $23.91 million during the current year. Council member Susan DeBurr was absent during the committee meeting, but was present when the council unanimously set the first budget hearing for the March 20th regular meeting in a text message. She said she's supportive of trying to bring the tax rate down. The second and final hearing should be as soon as April 3rd. Quote, the citizens are going to see more of an increase than what's laid out here, said Cruz, when considering what other property tax increases 
may be approved by school districts and the county. Quote, I want a net zero, he added, in talking about the impact on residents' property tax bills for the fiscal year starting July 1st. However, Finance and Business Operations Director Jennifer Rodenbeck presented the tax hike as part of the city's fiscal proposal. Residents whose homes have been assessed a value of $100,000 would see an $18.55 increase to $641.59 in the city's portion of their property taxes under the proposal. That factors in the state-established residential rollback, the percentage of properties value that is taxed, and a proposed property tax rate hike. It also assuming nothing was done to change a home's assessed value within the last year. Currently, the tax rate is proposed at $11.74 per $1,000 of taxable valuation, up from $11.51 a year ago. That rate was the seventh lowest of the 20 largest cities in Iowa. Rodenbeck's office crafted the proposed budget with notable challenges in mind. One was the $527,600 cost increase in what the city must levy to pay for the Blackhawk County Consolidated Law Enforcement Dispatch Center budget because of a change in the formula. The other was a $430,000 less in revenue than had been anticipated after the residential rollback was lowered in response to an error included in previous state legislation. Legislators didn't take any action to alleviate the financial burden on cities, as had been previously discussed. They did, however, extend the budget filing deadline to April 30th. The city appears locked into the cost increase for dispatch services because other options are not believed to be viable. They include joining dispatch services of the University of Northern Iowa or another county. Quote, the county as a whole kind of put a mark on Cedar Falls, and it's a tough one to swallow, said Councilmember Gil Schultz. Officials point out that jumping ship to another dispatch center may be counterproductive because legislators are weighing the possibility of making the levy used by municipalities to pay for the service a county-wide assessment. In other words, residents may automatically be thrust into paying for the Blackhawk County dispatch through the county-wide levy on top of the city's share of the cost for another dispatch center if it decided to go in that alternative direction. Quote, what if, in a year, it goes to a county-wide levy? Now Cedar Falls residents are stuck, said Rodenbeck. Now we've committed ourselves to another option and, if it's a county-wide levy, they still have to pay for the county-wide levy, unquote. To make up the nearly $1 million difference between the two fiscal challenges, the finance director said after the meeting that the city relied on growth in property values as well as cuts to each department's budget. Schultz expressed his appreciation for the work city staff did in response to the fiscal challenges and was followed by a couple others in sharing similar sentiments, including council members Dustin Ganfield and Simon Harding. Quote, it's a tough situation, but I echo Councilmember Schultz's statements. 
Thanks for keeping the tax rate as low as possible, said Harding. Rodenbeck said the department expects to return to council members at some point with other possible cuts for them to consider in response to Cruz and Cyrus's demands. For instance, she said they may look at a list of new positions the city proposed back in November, as well as other capital improvements that rely on fiscal year 2024 funding and directly affect the tax rate. The March 20 hearing will be when the council considers setting the maximum levy rate, which only includes certain applicable levies or mechanisms by which the city taxes. The levies would bring in $22.37 million in revenue. The tax levies not included within the maximum levy are for debt service, the library, and the municipal band. Once included, they bring the total levy to $24.48 million. Taxes are just one of the revenue sources in the proposed budget, which includes an estimated $116 million in expenditures. Quote, we're going to be digging into this more after we set the hearing, said Councilmember Kelly Dunn. Quote, obviously, we're going to be pouring through the budget, unquote. Now let's turn the page to the Cedar Valley section, and the first story is titled, CF Road Project Plans Move Forward, Contract Award Next in North Cedar Heights Street Reconstruction. Story filed by Andy Malone, Dateline Cedar Falls. A project that's been long discussed by one neighborhood is nearing a start date. The City Council unanimously approved the plans Monday for the first of five phases of road reconstruction in the North Cedar Heights subdivision. A contract award will be considered within the next few weeks. The first phase's cost is projected at $3.96 million. If awarded, engineer Dave Wickey estimates work would begin in the spring on Timber Drive from Grand Avenue to Greenwood Avenue and West Ridgewood Drive from Greenwood Avenue to Cherry Lane. Part of Greenwood Avenue is also part of the plans. Quote, the roads are crumbling, and part of the problem is there's no curb and gutter, said Councilmember Dustin Ganfield. It being expensive would be the only reason to find fault with it, but it's had ongoing maintenance, and it's a project that has to get done, unquote. Wiki said those in the North Cedar Heights subdivision approached the city in the year 2019 with concerns related to road pavement, water main leaks, and poor drainage, among other issues. Work includes the reconstruction of the water mains and storm and sanitary sewers, as well as slope repairs, new sub-drain installation, and asphalt pavement with concrete curb edging and intersections. The Council also approved permanent and temporary easements in conjunction with the project. The neighborhood was the topic of conversation about a year ago, when the council gathered to talk about residents needing to correct illegal private connections that discharge clean stormwater and groundwater into the city's sanitary sewer system. Homeowners have 60 days from the time the adjacent road has been reconstructed to hire a plumber to correct the illegal connections. If they fail to do so, they'll be hit with a monthly surcharge for treatment of the water. The neighborhood had become one of the most problematic in the city, officials said, 
at the time because extreme wet weather events led the Park Drive lift station to get inundated, causing sanitary sewer overflows in those areas and backups into homes. About 140 homes dot the North Cedar Heights neighborhood, comprising Timber Drive, Edwards Avenue, Greenwood Avenue, West Ridgewood Drive, Cherry Lane, Picturesque Drive, Oakland Avenue, and Woodland Avenue. Next, we have an article under the heading Government and Politics, and it's titled, Second Installment of Real Estate and Mobile Home Taxes Due March 31st. Dateline Waterloo. As mandated by Iowa law, the deadline for paying the second installment of real estate and mobile home taxes is March 31st. Payment being made for the current tax year must be USPS postmarked by March 31st, 2023 to the Blackhawk County Treasurer at 316 East 5th Street, Waterloo, 50703. Include the payment stub or stubs from the tax bill, along with a check. For a receipt, include a self-addressed stamped envelope with payment. Payment may be made online at iowatreasurers.org for real estate or mobile home taxes. For credit card payments, Visa, MasterCard, or Discover cards can be used for non-refundable service delivery fee of 2.25% per transaction. Or you may pay by e-check for $0.25 per transaction. A single payment can be made or a recurring payment plan set up by going to the website iowatreasurers.org under the Property Tax tab. Click on Scheduled Payments to set up. Interest for March 2023 installment will accrue at the rate of 1.5% per month beginning at April 1st. If the parcel is in tax sale status, Contact the office for redemption information. Payment by guaranteed funds is required to redeem a tax sale. Guaranteed funds are cash, certified check, cashier's check, or money order. Property owners who are over 65 years of age or totally disabled with an income of less than $25,328 or mobile homeowners over 23 years of age with an income less than 25328 may be eligible for help on the taxes due for September 2023, March 2024. If filing due to a disability, proof of disability is required and must be attached to the form when returning to the Treasurer's Office by June 1st. The Treasurer's Office in the Courthouse is open from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Monday through Friday. Payments may also be deposited in the secured drop box located at the northeast corner of the courthouse. For further information, call area code 319-833-3013. And at this time, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, March 8th on IRIS the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Waterloo Earl William Stimo, 93, of Waterloo, 
passed away on March 3rd at Mercy One Medical Center. He was a resident of Lakeview Lodge Friendship Village in Waterloo, Iowa. He was born on March 8, 1929, at home in Eagle Township, Iowa, son of Frank W. and Sylvia Weber Steimel. He married Miriam Jean Driscoll on June 29, 1954, at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Waterloo. Earl graduated from St. Mary of Mount Carmel School, Eagle Center. He farmed with his dad and worked part-time at Rath Packing Company and as a lineman for the telephone company. He served as a sergeant in the U.S. Army during the Korean War from 1951 to 1953 as a communications specialist with the 321st Signal Corps, Company B, in Stuttgart, Germany. Upon return, he continued farming full-time for the next 46 years, retiring in 1998. His son Jerry continues to farm the same land that has been in the family for 160-plus years. Earl was a lifetime member of St. Mary of Mount Carmel Catholic Church, serving on the board and in numerous capacities. He was instrumental in building the new church, started in 1976. He was a 25-year member of the American Legion in Gilbertville and a longtime member of the Knights of Columbus. Earl loved reading, especially history, and was a World War II expert. He also loved the outdoors, gardening, church work, traveling, and bird watching, especially eagles and geese. He visited all 50 states, as well as many countries throughout the world. Many times, Miriam just wanted to stay home, but Earl would say, let's go. Earl spent his entire life living in the same few square miles, but lived a full life. He was a great role model, teacher, and mentor to many. He set the bar high with his love of his family, get-it-done work ethic, and generosity. He was an amazing listener and had an insatiable curiosity. He accepted people for who they were, never judged, and was a friend to all. The family would like to express its deep appreciation and heartfelt gratitude to the staffs of Rosewood Estates, Friendship Village, Friends at Home, Alan E.R., and Mercy One, who were so very caring and supportive. And a special thanks to Dr. Hamid Ajadi and his office staff. There will be a public visitation from 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m. Wednesday, March 8, 2023, at St. Mary's of Mount Carmel Church, where there will be a 4 p.m. rosary. Visitation also one hour prior to the Mass on Thursday at the church. Funeral will be at 9.30 a.m. Thursday, March 9th, at St. Mary's of Mount Carmel Church, with burial in the church cemetery. Full military rites will be conducted by the American Legion Nugent Dumuth, Post 714 Gilbertville, assisted by the Iowa Army Honor Guard. Memorials and cards may be sent to Earl Steimel at 3836 Tammy Terrace, Waterloo, Iowa, 50702. Online condolences may be left at www.haggertywychoffgrarup.com. Next, Waterloo. Sherry Lynn Gallmeyer, 67, of Waterloo, passed away Sunday, March 5th, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, 
with her family by her side. Sherry was born May 14, 1955, at Scheutz Memorial Hospital in Waterloo. She was the daughter of Louis F. and Marvel C. Crowley Schmidt. Sherry graduated from West High School in May of 1974. She married Ricky A. Galmeyer on June 4, 1977. They made their home in the Waterloo area, where they welcomed three children, two sons Jason and Justin, and a daughter Jessica. Visitation for Sherry will be on Friday, March 10th, from 12 o'clock p.m. to 2 o'clock p.m. at the Parrot and Wood Chapel of Memories, 965 Home Plaza, Waterloo. Her funeral service will be Friday, March 10th, at 2 p.m. at Parrot and Wood Chapel of Memories, 965 Home Plaza, in Waterloo. Burial to follow at Garden of Memories Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to the family. Arrangements are with Parrot and Wood Chapel of Memories in Waterloo, Iowa. Their phone number is 319-232-3235. And condolences for Sherry may be left at www.parrotandwood.com. Next, in Cedar Falls, Bonita May Refsage, 87, of Cedar Falls, died Monday, March 6th, at New Aldea Lifescapes. She was born on October 17, 1935, in Cedar Falls, Iowa, the daughter of Christian and Martha Refsage. She graduated from T.C. High School in Cedar Falls in 1953. She worked in the University of Northern Iowa's Controller's Office for 63 years, first as an account clerk and then as an account specialist, retiring in 2017. She also sold tickets at the Unidome and McLeod Center for various events. Funeral services for Bonita will be at 11 a.m. Monday, March 13th, at Nazareth Lutheran Church, Larson Chapel, in Cedar Falls. Visitation will be at 9.30 a.m. until the service time. Interment at Greenwood Cemetery in Cedar Falls. Memorials may be directed to the family. Online condolences may be left at www.richardsonfuneralservice.com. And now, let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial comes from the Storm Lake Times pilot titled Suicidal Trade Notions, and it was written by Art Cullen. Donald Trump didn't bother to consult Zippy Duval of the American Farm Bureau about dusting off his trade war playbook with China. Trump must not have asked former ambassador to China Terry Branstead either about his plan to hike tariffs on Chinese goods if he is re-elected president, or any number of farm state politicians who went running away from the idea this week. Duval told Politico that Trump didn't ask him about avoiding a repeat of tanking soybean markets, then dumping $60 billion over two years to buy agribusiness support for his unproductive trade war with China. Several House Republicans from rural districts said they were extremely leery. One called Trump's ideas suicidal. A lot of politicians are piling on China these days, some for good reason, and others just looking to pick a fight in perilous times. Food is not best used as a weapon. Our agricultural trade policy 
could foster prosperity and cooperation and not be a source of provocation. China is our top pork and soy consumer. Farmers are not interested in taking a bath in corn and soy markets, and meat exporters do not want any landmines placed in the field of trade. Trump would do well to consult his friends in farming before going off half-cocked. Our trade in agriculture and food products and services is vital to laying a foundation for superpower cooperation. It makes sense for the United States to protect national security by reshoring critical industries like computer semiconductors. We should protect ourselves from Chinese cybercrime. We should support Taiwan and advocate for Hong Kong, but we don't want to stumble into conflict just for its sake. When the CIA tells you that China is doing this or that with Russia, take it with a grain of salt. Statements of top-secret intelligence are made public for a reason. We are the world's leading arms dealer, supplying horrible regimes like Saudi Arabia, and we have objects flying over Wuhan, no doubt. Let's keep things in some perspective. Staying grounded in a pragmatic food and agriculture trade policy with China is important for U.S. agriculture, for hungry people, and to maintain the peace. It's important for the Amazon rainforest that the U.S. can be counted on as a reliable provider of ag commodities. If we start another trade war, China will simply order up more acres in Brazil. The problem is that people don't think through what their rhetoric suggests. Trade wars lead to shooting wars. Food is not a weapon. Farmers are not fodder. Trump should call Duval. Next, we have an editorial from the New York Times by Margaret Renkel. The title is, The Beautiful and Terrifying Arrival of an Early Spring, Dateline Nashville. At first, I thought this winter's strange weather was merely part of the boomerang pattern we contend with more and more frequently in these climate-troubled days. Warm spells that might rightly be called hot spells. Hard freezes that descend so quickly the plants don't have time to adjust. On one January day, the temperature fell so far so fast here that many non-native evergreen trees and shrubs froze to death. On one February day, the high hit 85 degrees, destroying records and causing my woolly-haired dog to stretch out on the hardwood floor, panting. I hadn't thought to schedule the groomer so early this year. But the uncommonly warm days of winter turned out not to be a warm spell, or even a hot spell. The uncommonly warm days of winter turned out to be spring. The wild flowers, collectively known as spring ephemerals, emerged all over our yard last month. Violets and spring beauties and early buttercups, and henbit, and two different kinds of speedwell. These tiny woodland flowers make their appearance in the first mild days of springtime to take advantage of the abundant light in a forest still bare of leaves. The sunnier yards than ours, if the yards have not been drenched in landscaping poisons at least, spring beauties can grow so thick they take your breath away. Before long, the trees and woody shrubs were waking up too. At our house, the red bud is just budding out, but across the street 
our neighbor's tree is already in full bloom. The sugar maples and oak leaf hydrangeas and northern spice bush trees are just past bud burst, and our red maple has been in full bloom for more than a week. For the first time ever, one of our young pawpaws is blooming. Pawpaw seedlings don't bloom for years, and it lifted my heart to see those little flowers on our tree for the first time. But everywhere spring was unfurling its annual magnificence weeks ahead of the norm, even the recent norm. Last year, I found the first spring beauty in our yard on March 10th. This year, it was February 16th. Last year, the first buds on our red bud showed up on March 24th. This year, it was February 23rd. Same story with the early buttercups. Last year, they bloomed on March 23rd. This year, it was February 25th. Climate change around the world. In postcards from a world on fire, 193 stories from individual countries show how climate change is reshaping reality everywhere, from dying coral reefs in Fiji to disappearing oases in Morocco and far, far beyond. The role of our leaders, writing at the end of 2020, Al Gore and the 45th Vice President of the United States found reasons for optimism in the Biden presidency, a feeling perhaps borne out by the passing of major climate legislation. That doesn't mean there haven't been criticisms. For example, Charles Harvey and Kurt House argue that subsidies for climate captured technology will ultimately be a waste. The worst climate risks mapped. In this feature, Select a country, and we'll break down the climate hazards it faces. In the case of America, our maps, developed with experts, show where extreme heat is causing the most deaths. What people can do. Justin Gillis and Hal Harvey describe the types of local activism that might be needed, while Saul Griffith points to how Australia shows the way on rooftop solar. Meanwhile, Small changes at the office might be one good way to cut significant emissions, writes Carlos Gamera. The songbirds are equally confused. Before the winter visitors had even packed their bags, the residents were choosing nest sites. Every time I walked out the back door, I startled a Carolina wren investigating the mesh bags of clothespins hanging on the line. Carolina wren's Famously nest close to human beings, often in potted plants, but sometimes in bizarre places like old boots, winter idle gas grills, and the pockets of potting shed aprons. I would gladly cede my clothesline to a wren family for the spring, but so far no doomed nest has appeared among the clothespins. I figured the wrens were only doing what wrens normally do on a warm day in February scouting out the options for nesting season that would commence sometime hence. Most songbirds seem to understand that warmth in winter is unlikely to last, that another arctic blast is bound to stomp in before true spring finally shivers into green. Or maybe it's just that winter always comes back quickly enough for them to give up on the idea of nesting. This year it didn't. Every day now, a pair of female bluebirds arrives to investigate the nest box in our front yard. They take turns. One will climb all the way into the box, 
while the other hangs on the doorway and peers inside. Then they switch places. I'm puzzled by this behavior, for in a normal spring, they would be fighting for territorial rights to a prime nesting site in a rapidly changing neighborhood with fewer and fewer places to nest. Perhaps they are mother and daughter, or sisters still together from last year's final clutch. Perhaps they are as puzzled as I am. I keep waiting for one of them to start a nest anyway. Some of the wildlife rescue groups I follow on social media have already had their first calls about young robins in trouble, baby birds, in February. Out in the marshy woods of Randor State Natural Area, the great blue heron rookery is in full swing too. I counted four nests in the still leafless sycamore, each in full view of the bald eagles that are also nesting at the lake. The forest is cooler and shadier than my yard, so the spring ephemerals are just emerging there. I was happy to see the little stand of toadstool trilliums and cutleaf toothwort that I look for every year, but I was happier still to see that spring seemed to be a bit slower to arrive in the woods. It is impossible not to be terrified about all this. I worry that winter will come roaring back to blast all these flowers and all these baby birds. I worry that this spring is the harbinger of brutal and everlasting summer. I worry most that careless human beings continue to be so careless and that profit-mad corporations continue to be so mad. For the life of me, I cannot understand the politicians who keep behaving as though what is happening to the climate isn't an existential threat. But I also can't help delighting in these tiny flowers reaching for the sun, and I make no effort to beat back my pleasure in this season of beginnings. I surrender to the thrumming promise in the springtime air. The birds sing, and God help me, I sing too. Next is an editorial written by President Joe Biden, which appeared in the New York Times. It is titled, My Plan to Extend Medicare for Another Generation. Millions of Americans work their whole life paying into Medicare with every working day, starting with their first job, even as teenagers. Medicare is more than a government program. It's the rock-solid guarantee that Americans have counted on to be there for them when they retire. For decades, I've listened to my Republican friends claim that the only way to be serious about preserving Medicare is to cut benefits, including by making it a voucher program worth less and less every year. Some have threatened our economy unless I agree to benefit cuts. Only in Washington can people claim that they are saving something by destroying it. The budget I am releasing this week will make the Medicare Trust Fund solvent beyond the year 2050 without cutting a penny in benefits. In fact, we can get better value, making sure Americans receive better care for the money they pay into Medicare. The two biggest health reform bills since the creation of Medicare, both of which will save Medicare hundreds of billions over the decades to come, were signed by President Barack Obama and me. The Affordable Care Act embraced smart reforms to make our health care system more efficient, 
while improving Medicare coverage for seniors. The Inflation Reduction Act ended the absurd ban on Medicare negotiating lower drug prices, required drug companies to pay rebates to Medicare if they increase prices faster than inflation, and capped seniors' total prescription drug costs, saving seniors up to thousands of dollars a year. These negotiations, combined with the law's rebates for excessive price hikes, will reduce the deficit by $159 billion. We have seen a significant slowdown in the growth of health care spending since the Affordable Care Act was passed. In the decade after the ACA, Medicare actually spent about $1 trillion less than the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office projected before the ACA reforms were in place. In 2009, before the ACA, the Medicare trustees projected that Medicare's trust fund would be exhausted in 2017. Their latest projection is 2028, but we still should do better than that and extend Medicare's solvency beyond the year 2050. So first, let's expand on that progress. My budget bill will build on drug price reforms by strengthening Medicare's newly established negotiation power, allowing Medicare to negotiate prices for more drugs and bring drugs into negotiation sooner after they launch. That's another $200 billion in deficit reduction. We will then take those savings and put them directly into Medicare Trust Fund, lowering drug prices while extending Medicare solvency sure makes a lot more sense than cutting benefits. Second, let's ask the wealthiest to pay just a little bit more of their fair share to strengthen Medicare for everyone over the long term. My budget proposes to increase the Medicare tax rate on earned and unearned income above 400000 to 5% from 3.8%. As I proposed in the past, my budget will also ensure that the tax that supports Medicare can't be avoided altogether. This modest increase in Medicare contributions from those in the highest incomes will help keep Medicare programs strong for decades to come. My budget will make sure the money goes directly into the Medicare Trust Fund, protecting taxpayers' investment and the future of the program. When Medicare was passed, the wealthiest 1% of Americans didn't have more than five times the wealth of the bottom 50% combined, and it only makes sense that some adjustments be made to reflect that reality today. Let's ask them to pay their fair share so that the millions of workers who helped them build that wealth can retire with dignity, and the Medicare they paid into, Republican plans that protect billionaires from a penny more in taxes, but won't protect a retired firefighter's hard-earned Medicare benefits, are just detached from the reality that hard-working families live with every day. Add all that up, and my budget will extend Medicare Trust Fund for more than another generation, an additional 25 years or more of solvency, beyond 2050. These are common-sense changes that I'm confident an overwhelming majority of Americans support. MAGA Republicans have a different view. They want to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act. 
That means they want to take away the power we just gave to Medicare to negotiate for lower prescription drug prices, get rid of the $35 per month cap for insulin we just got for people on Medicare, and remove the current $2,000 total annual cap for seniors. If the MAGA Republicans get their way, seniors will pay higher out-of-pocket costs on prescription drugs and insulin. The deficit will be bigger, and Medicare will be weaker. The only winner under the plan will be Big Pharma. That's not how we extend Medicare's life for another generation or grow the economy. This week, I'll show Americans my full budget vision to invest in America, lower costs, grow the economy, and not raise taxes on anyone making under $400,000. I urge my Republican friends in Congress to do the same and show the American people what they value. Joseph R. Biden Jr. is the 46th President of the United States. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, March 8th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading of the Courier or the other newspapers around the state of Iowa that we read here on our website, iowaradioreading.org. You can do that at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <music>